0: i've been known from time to time to go off on little screeds little rants about how the left is anti-human life and in that sense how they present a moral evil that must be defeated and this is language that i imagine prompts a fair amount of eye-rolling from uh, those of you who may be left of center. Oh, Walter, there you go again. Hyperbole, exaggeration, demagoguery. But I'm dead serious. Like, I don't say these things to be entertaining. I, I, I mean, I hate to break it to you. I, I mean, entertainment's part of the business, so if it happens to correlate with being entertaining, that's great. But the real reason why I say it is because it's true. It's true, and we're going to explore that a little bit here tonight on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com in your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Catch up on past programs by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. Our channel will pop right up for you. You can contribute this evening, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omeland takes those calls and produces the show. Before we get into the anti-life, the anti-human life nature of the left, I just want to give you the latest here over the weekend from the ongoing fallout and controversy from that anonymous New York Times op-ed that was authored uh, supposedly by a senior Trump administration official last week. Anonymous. (laughs) anonymous From the L.A. Times. Vice President Mike Pence might have the most to gain from a premature end to Donald Trump's presidency, but in an interview aired Sunday, he forcefully denied engaging in any discussion about invoking the 25th Amendment to eject Trump from office. The vice president, who made appearances on two major Sunday news talk shows, also delivered a sweeping condemnation of Watergate journalist Bob Woodward's depiction of a uh, caperious and and incurious president. it's interesting that they got a shoehorn in Watergate journalist, you know, just to remind you all. And again, denied authorship of a stinging anonymous op-ed published last week in The New York Times that describes high-level officials discussing removing Trump. Pence said he was willing to take a lie detector test to back up his denial of personal authorship of the critique, but said he had not asked his staff whether any of them had penned the anonymous critique because he fully trusted none had done so. Trump has vowed to root out the op-ed writer described by the New York Times as a senior administration uh, official whose identity the paper knows. The president has urged the Justice Department to ferret out the official's identity, prompting a new wave of criticism over Trump's seeming belief that he may utilize federal law enforcement as an instrument of political reward and retribution. Yeah, because I'm sure nobody's ever done that before. Donald Trump is, is inventing using government resources for political ends. This is the first guy who's ever thought of doing that, Donald Trump. A never-invoked section of the 25th Amendment provides for a sitting president's removal if the vice president and a majority of cabinet secretaries pronounce him or her unfit to discharge the duties of office. The anonymous op-ed describes cabinet-level officials talking about the possibility discussions that would conceivably have been brought to Pence's attention since he would be both a prime mover and beneficiary of such a scenario. In an interview aired on CBS's Face the Nation, Pence replied, no, never, when asked if he had taken part in any such talks before swiftly pivoting to the administration's accomplishments. So there you go. I thought it was particular because I saw a little clip of this interview, uh, on probably on YouTube or something, when I was surfing around on the Internet. And it was interesting when they, to actually see when they tried to press him on, well, have you, have you asked each of your staff members, Vice President Pence, have you asked each of them whether or not they were the ones who authored? And he, he kind of, he, he was kind of taken aback for a moment and then he shook it off and came back and was like, I don't have to ask them because I trust them. I know them. Th- these are people who I've picked, who are my colleagues, who I've placed faith in, and we're part of a team. Now, that speaks to what we talked about last week when we were analyzing this whole thing about the the narrative that is being with, wove together from all these separate sources, you know, as even though you might question the veracity of the different sources whether you're talking about the Bob Woodward book or you're talking about the anonymous op-ed or you're talking about other reports that we've seen in the past there seems to be this this overarching theme of a lack of cohesiveness a lack of trust and and almost a a sense of almost like Hunger Games competition or, you know, survivor competition reality show style taking place within the White House among staff where they feel as though it's kind of every man for himself. We've got to save the country from our president and what have you. And, you know, whatever else you want to say about it, it, it's inappropriate. It's uncalled for. You can't have staff members. You can't have members of the administration who are working against the agenda of the elected president of the United States. That said... There is a leadership problem here because, you know, leaders create the environment in which the people who they've chosen to work for them support their agenda. And, you know, leadership is something that can't. And look, Donald Trump, if Donald Trump was criticizing or was looking at this situation from the outside in, if it was somebody else who was going through this, Donald Trump would be the first person to say, The buck stops with the man in charge. He'd be the first person to say that. And so, you know, I think it's fair to apply that same standard to the president, not in an unnecessarily critical manner, but just to to at least acknowledge that he plays some role in the culture that he's the leader of. So that's all I gotta say about that so far, there really weren't many developments along
1: these lines. I was kind of surprised i
0: I half expected that we were gonna find out who the person was over
1: the weekend. It was a bit of a slow news weekend, which was okay. It really was, which was totally fine
0: i'm I'm totally fine with slow news weekends, and in particularly in this case, it's I think that there are clearly there's clearly much more interest in protecting the identity of whoever this person is than there is in being the one to get the scoop because the, the, the rumor has it that there are an increasing circle of people who do know who this person is, but it still hasn't been made public.
1: Sure. And, but again, the media has an incentive to do that because they know that they might be able to get more exposés out of this person or people who are also willing to be, uh, anonymous yeah. once. Well. They, yeah, that's
0: once they blow the cover of whoever this is, then they lose their credibility in terms of milking other potential sources as well. So they have they definitely have that incentive to keep things going the way they are. All right. So let's turn towards home. Let's turn here towards Minneapolis and uh, take a look at what has come to be just, you know, policy that could be taken for granted at the municipal level in a, in a major city in the United States, and that is environmental policy. You know, Minneapolis has an environmental policy. They have a goal to reduce carbon emissions by a certain percentage uh, by the year, I believe it is, 2040 or 2050 or something along those lines. We'll get into those details here shortly. 2050, 80%. They want to cut. (laughs) Ah, I'm sorry, I can't say it with a straight face. They want to cut gas emissions in Minneapolis by 80%
1: by the year 2050. It's a completely made-up number. It's literally one city said, oh, we want to cut it by 40. Well, you right. want to cut it by 60. And Minneapolis is like, we're going to be the most progressive. That's we're going right. to do 80. That's right. It's nothing but
0: virtue signaling. And when you, when you consider the absurdity, and I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself here on this, but you know, just, just to kind of set the tone. Consider the absurdity of just arbitrarily picking a percentage by which you're going to reduce the byproduct of life by an, a date in the future that you've thrown a dart at a board at. That's it. Like, that's how you figured it out. We're just, we're going to 80% of guess. Now, why? Here's a question for you. I know this should go without saying it hurts my brain to even ask it, but it needs to be asked. Obviously, it needs to be asked, particularly of the people who are in charge of Minneapolis. Why does anyone ever emit gas from their vehicles? Why? I'm glad you added that last part. I I am as well. Why does anybody ever engage in the emission of greenhouse gases? Is it because they hate the earth? Is it because they're careless? Is it because they're negligent? Is it because they're selfish? Why do people emit greenhouse gases in their various goings-on, their various to and fro throughout the day? And the answer is pretty self-evident, right? You emit greenhouse gases to the extent that you are pursuing the values required for you to survive and thrive. You're going back and forth to work. You're heating your home so you cannot die in the winter. Right. Your industry commerce is being fueled so that you can have the means to sustain your lifestyle and to say to to ultimately sustain your life itself perpetually sustainably over time. That's why we admit greenhouse gases. So the idea that we're just going to pick a number that we're going to reduce this byproduct of human life by by a certain point in the future that we've just picked out of the ether, it's. Ultimately, if you really want to hit that number, ultimately what you're going to have to do is just start killing people. That's what you're going to have to do because people are the reason why these emissions happen. People living their lives and pursuing their values are why these emissions happen. And it's, it's amazing. As we get move along in this article and a couple other ones that I got here, this really hammers home the point that we try to make repeatedly here on the program that hopefully is getting through to to most of you that the left isn't just good faith political opposition that we can have friendly conversations with and and attribute decency and niceness to and oh they're just they're the other side they're the other team and you know they're the the loyal opposition and you know we ought to be buddies with them and what have you no they are enemies They're enemies of humanity, enemies of human life. Their agenda, if implemented, would at the very least, at the very least, result in greatly diminished quality of life and more likely than not would actually cause human deaths, real deaths. It's happened. We can point to places on the globe and throughout history where it has occurred on mass Because they are against, fundamentally, the means by which human beings pursue those values required for human life. This is not an exaggeration. This is demonstrably true. We'll get into it more when we come back. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. The first line of this Star Tribune article unto itself confirms my thesis. That being that the left is inherently and clearly and unapologetically anti-human life. Here's the first line of the article, Star Tribune. The city of Minneapolis wants you to stop driving to the grocery store. They want you to stop Going to the grocery store in the most efficient, cost efficient, time efficient manner in order to obtain and also, right, to get the most amount of stuff, right? That's the other reason why you drive, not just because it's fast, not just because it's quick and because it's easy, but also because you can, you can make the most of the trip. You can get the most stuff. You're not going to be able to pack all that stuff on top of you and walk it or bike it back to wherever you live. That's why you use the car. Minneapolis wants you to stop doing that. That is anti-life. Closing argument. My name is Walter in Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, 651-989-5855. They continue at the Strip. These kinds of routine errands account for an outsized percentage of driving trips, city planners say, contributing in a big way to Minneapolis' struggle to reduce its environmental footprint. In drafting the 2040 comprehensive plan, city planners have been revisiting Minneapolis's ambitious 2014 goal to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050. In order to make good on this commitment, they say the city needs to reduce driving trips in Minneapolis by 37%. (sighs) Okay, so I can't resist the urge to, to break out of this and just give you this little aside. So... Let me just ask you, like personally, you, yeah, you sitting there, what would your life look like if you had to drive 37% less? Would you characterize your life as better or worse? Would you be more capable of achieving that which you desire of seeking those values which make your life more worth living or would you be less capable of doing so, if you just you know over the course of the next few years had to whittle it down, you know, four trips out of ten you couldn't take from here on out, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? The answer, I imagine, is pretty obvious. Continuing at the strip, what we're saying is, what thirty-seven percent of trips could uh, you eliminate from your life? That's the question that Paul Magoosh, city planning manager, and what would take what would it take to help you get there? continued The city's answer includes bringing more goods and services closer to where people already live such as allowing for more commercial businesses in highly populated areas in other words put the stuff closer together so it's easier to get to the stuff said Mogash The city's 2040 plan lays out a long range vision for the future of Minneapolis it includes a series of interconnected big picture goals such as building more affordable housing creating more living wage jobs and making the city more resilient to climate change now i i hate to rain on the parade but you know all each of those things that they mention are actually going to make it more difficult for people to get their stuff right i mean your goal so affordable housing meaning you're going to pay for it with tax dollars meaning you're going to take it out of the pockets of property owners and taxpayers. So they're going to have less money that they've earned in order to pursue values such as food at the grocery store, right? So that's number one thing you're going to do. It's going to make their life obviously tangibly worse. Number two, create more living wage jobs. So you're going to arbitrarily come between people who want to work and people who want to employ them and say, no, you guys can't have that relationship. We're not going to allow you to consent to a job, to consent to an employment relationship, and therefore people are going to have less money to begin with in order to pursue their values such as going to the grocery store and then thirdly you're going to take action to quote make the city more resilient to climate change which god only knows what all that entails but i can guess it has something to do with limiting people's capacity to actually utilize those vehicles to get to where they need to go probably including the vehicles which bring the food to the grocery store in the first place which is going to make everything unlimitedly more expensive and so why, which makes the business model for having one of these, I don't know what they imagine, like some sort of mom and pop style hole in the wall, you know, walk by the grocery store place that you could just dive into real quick to get your groceries. That business model will be so absurdly expensive to implement that nobody's going to do it. And, and unless you're willing to subsidize grocery stores, which I wouldn't put past Minneapolis, then none
1: of this is actually going to manifest in reality. You know how you become more resilient to climate change? Trees. Well, Plant a tree. Go. Right.
0: I thought, I thought you were going to say go inside. <laughs> Stay indoors. That, that too. That too. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program.
2: Yeah, thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yeah. You know, just I tuned in a little late, but I got a fair amount of what you were you were talking about in Minneapolis. And I remember hearing something about. When Mr. Lewis used to be on, he used to talk about Agenda 21. Yeah. The other thing, I recently saw the latest Marvel movie, Infinity Wars, and this it just seems like they've gathered all their Infinity Stones now, and they're just going to snap their fingers, and they're going to plan it out for everybody so they can make the world a better place.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that it seems as though Hollywood doesn't see the irony of that, that particular plot point. Yeah, Th- Thanos' agenda is the left's agenda. Let's get rid of people. And look, they may not say that. Yeah, you know, I'm sure Mao didn't say it at first. I'm sure, I'm sure Castro didn't say it at first. But it's the, it is the logical consequence of implementing their policies. The only way that you can reduce the byproduct of human life is to reduce human life. That's how it works. Like, if, you, if your prescription is, we're going to get rid of a byproduct of modern human life, but we don't have an alternative by which that life can be sustained, then by lo- logical deduction, the only possible conclusion of that is you're going to reduce human life. And that really, literally, tangibly will happen. It'll happen both in terms of poor quality of life and also in people literally dying. You know, there are people out there, and yet these are the same people, the, the left are the same folks who claim to have so much compassion for the poor. The reason they want to increase the minimum wage is because they have so much compassion for people who are working so hard in order to, to make a living for their families. And yet, those are the very people who will be hit the hardest by all of these policies. A person who has to scrimp and count their pennies in order to get by from day to day, week to week, check to check, is the first person who's going to be knocked off of whatever level of sustainability they've managed to cobble together for themselves into abject poverty by these policies, and the left does not care. Because, and I appreciate the call as always, Mike, because as we've often noted, they, their claims of compassion are completely disingenuous. They have no actual desire to improve the individual life of a real human being. They only care in the abstract about the idea of the disadvantage in, in, in so much as it provides a utility that they can leverage for political gain, which is pretty atrocious and ought to be pretty easy to beat if only our politicians would speak in these terms. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. been talking about Minneapolis's plan to slowly strangle the life out of its residents. I, I wish that was just... Uh, metaphorical imagery but in point of fact through their environmental goals they they quite literally are putting people on the path now look the it's it's an exaggeration a little bit only because there isn't a wall around minneapolis and you can leave right but like if you were if you were stuck there that's the difference between, you know, a situation like Minneapolis having bad economic policies or even a state in the Union having bad economic policies and the Soviet Union is that the Soviet Union. actually They actually built a wall, right, to keep people in, not to keep them out, to keep people in because people couldn't stand it and needed to leave in order to secure the values necessary to sustain their lives. So the only saving grace is like California right now. The only saving grace for California is is that people can still leave, and they're doing so in droves. A lot of them are going to Texas, and they're starting to ruin Texas, which because that's what ha- what happens. They they leave because they're like, oh, this I can't do this anymore. And then they go somewhere else and start making the new place that they moved to as bad as the place they left, because they didn't learn any lessons as to why things were so bad for the place that
1: they left. I think you're describing the Smugstorm episode of South Park. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually quite apropos.
0: All right, let's talk to Will in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program,
2: Will. How's it going? Hey. Well, I'm not Will, but oh, uh, okay, so I am on. What's your name? Roby. Oh, okay. So I just wanted to add that uh, they wanted to get rid of 200,000 cars, and uh, we've never had a tent city in Minneapolis that I can ever remember until now. A huge one. Yeah. Along the side of Hiawatha. And well, I mean that's a
0: pretty good way to that's a pretty good way to get rid of the cars. Everybody can live in tents in a
2: park. Yeah, you know, we can all just be on a light rail and yeah. you, know, you don't have to pay for anything. <laughs> but it, it seems like you know there's a very very strong uh, liberal. You know, there's a lot of prosperity in Minneapolis and Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so. These people are in the shade or in the dark. That's right. And don't see that's right. that they're paying for something they're never going to receive. Mm-hmm. And they think we should all do the same. Yeah. Appreciate the call. Appreciate I'm, your thoughts. Uh, I live in an RV. And so it's not any easier for me, but I'm not going to pay any rent. Well, that's
0: one way to do it. Appreciate the call. Yeah. I. Recently rewatched the aviator, Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio. And there's this great scene in there because, you know, it's Howard Hughes and he had this long relationship with Catherine Hepburn. And there's this scene where they go to her family's house and her family. I don't know the whole backstory of Catherine Hepburn and the Hepburns, but apparently they were rich. Apparently they were just opulently wealthy. And so there's this scene where they go back to her family's house to have dinner. And the family's just atrocious. Like they're just really god awful, obnoxious people who have opinions about everything but don't know anything. And it's just it's really atrocious. And, it, and they keep talking about how we need to go socialist and how FDR's so great and anybody who talks against Roosevelt is not welcome in this house. And and you can see Leonardo DiCaprio is Howard Hughes slowly kind of getting irritated and getting wound up, but he's not saying anything. And at some point he explodes and says something. And the point that triggers him is the mom says something to the effect of, we don't care about money around
1: here. And he's like, yeah, that's because you got it. Well, that's exactly the point. Um, And to the caller's point, he said, there's a lot of wealth and prosperity in Minneapolis. And that's precisely why the people who are advocating for the policies aren't feeling the effects of it. They have, I said it last week on the program, they have liberal privilege. That's right. They are, they are privileged by their status to be liberal. Right. And they don't feel the, the fixed cost effects of their tax of their raise in taxes. They don't feel the effects on housing. They don't feel the effects on food. They don't feel the effects on the sales tax. Um, So, they are insulated by their wealth from the effect of these policies.
0: Yeah, another great pop culture moment that, that bears that out is the original Ghostbusters early on in the film where Dan Aykroyd is trying to convince them that they're really in trouble because they lost their jobs at the university. And he's like, you guys have never worked in the private sector. It's rough out there. They actually expect results, right? they that speaks to a reality. There is this, if you're in the, in, in academic circles, if you're working over at NPR and their palatial taxpayer funded studios, right? Like they do pay better. Ab- absolutely. You are living a quality of life that is made possible by people who are earning the money you're benefiting from. And you're not in danger of it being taken away just because you fail to produce value. And so. Being in that environment where you get paid no matter what, and it's it's from the fruit of other people's labor, affords you the opportunity or the privilege, as Brad puts it, it affords you the privilege to imagine that the world actually works the way that you see it, but it doesn't, and it never will. And to the extent that you try to force that on the rest of us, there is a tipping point. You know, the difference between... What we currently see in the United States of America, or what you see across the pond in European nations that are further along the the d- descent into socialism, the, the difference between all those nations and Venezuela is that is is this tipping point. There is a tipping point past which those who produce can carry the load for those who can't, and once you get past that tipping point things start to collapse and that's where you get the bread lines and you know, the the infl- the hyperinflation and the not being able to you know people eating their dogs in the street and what have you that's where you get to that and and so th- the question is how close to that cliff are we going to step before we realize maybe it's not such a good idea let's talk to Eric calling all the way from Chicago appreciate that welcome to the program
3: Hey, uh, you know, you just mentioned a few minutes ago the uh, impact of California expats and what they're taking with them. Yeah. Um, I lived out in Tucson for a number of years, and uh, back around 2008 when we moved there was the height of the real estate boom in California, and everyone was selling out and moving to places like Phoenix, Tucson, Las Vegas. Anywhere pretty much within about an eight-hour drive of the beach, um, people were buying (laughs) property there outside of California. Sure. And they brought their values, they brought their politics with them, and right now, you know, that's probably one of the bigger influences when you look at a state like Nevada, which was reliably a red state for Mm -hmm. most of its history. Right. Um, It went blue in like 2008 through 2010. You look at Arizona and how the – from a political landscape, you know, the, the Democrats are hoping that state turns blue. It's not just the Hispanic influence, it's the it's the expats from California. Right, right. I saw it in Tucson with my property taxes, uh-huh. um with with the way that the county was being run. And eventually the people running for local office. All politics are local, well guess what? So it it's not just it's not just uh Texas. I I have to wonder how much um people fleeing Chicago are going to do the same thing to the places that they're fleeing to. you yeah. got a bunch coming up to the Twin Cities. Yeah. you got people that are going into southern Wisconsin, people going to northeast Indiana, and they're going to continue to do so as long as Illinois keeps kind of swirling around the bankruptcy toilet bowl.
0: Yeah. Appreciate the call, Eric. Appreciate the insights. Yeah, the reason I contrasted California and Texas is just because of the, the – polarity there. I don't think you're going to find two more extreme states. I mean, those are probably the, the left-right extremes in the nation. Uh, but obviously, yes, there are, there are many other places to which people are migrating from California and from other blue states and bringing their stupid ideas with them in order to make the new place they live stupider than it was the day before. So there's this piece that kind of goes hand-in-hand with the the Star Tribune well reporting on Minneapolis's green initiatives and it's just a broader screed against capitalism by a guy named Drew Hansen. Now, you know, every once in a while you'll see in your social media feed, you'll see some post from, you know, way back in the day or an article cited from way back in the day like in the 70s or 80s or or earlier than that. When some scientist or politico predicted that the world was going to come to an end, that we were all going to starve to death, that we were going to we were going to run out of food by the year two thousand one, or you know the the oceans were going to rise by forty feet by the year nineteen ninety five, or whatever the case may be, and of course none of that's happened, and we we post it and we mock it and we say ha 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 ha, this is one of those articles written last year or actually a couple of years ago that says unless unless it changes, capitalism will starve humanity by 2050. So right about the time that Minneapolis has reduced its carbon emissions by 80%, we're all going to die anyway because we're going to starve on account of capitalism that's been unchanged according to this guy. He says capitalism has generated massive wealth for some. But it's devastated the planet and has failed to improve human well-being at scale. Species are going extinct at a rate of 1,000 times faster than that of the natural rate over the previous 65 million years. How could he possibly know that? Since 2,006 million hectares of primary forest have been lost each year, that's 14,826,322 acres, or just less than the entire state of West Virginia. Even in the U.S., 15% of the population lives below the poverty line. For children under the age of 18, that number increases to 20%. The world's population is expected to reach 10 billion by 2050. How do we expect to feed that many people while we exhaust the resources that remain? Human activities are behind the extinction crisis. Commercial agriculture, timber extraction, and infrastructure development are causing habitat loss, and our reliance on fossil fuels is a major contributor to climate change. Now, notice the first sentence in that last paragraph, where, again, he hits the nail right on the head. Human activities are behind the extinction crisis. Well, gee, Bucko, Mr. Drew if human activities are the problem, then what exactly is it that we need to reduce human activity?
1: Sounds to me like your prescription might be a little bit worse than the problem. Well, he completely contradicts himself in this article. And he makes the point alone that the human population is growing. That's so, right. Yeah, right. Are, are we starving <laughs> or are we growing? Right. And then maybe you'll get to it. But later in the article, he says that tech startups are have a more socially conscious view of how they run their company. Uh-huh. So capitalism is bad, but startups are using the means of capitalism to, in a non forcible way, in a way that is not enforced by government, just simply by meeting a market demand, right. are doing what people like him want. Right. So either capitalism is bad or capitalism is good. Which is it? Well, and he,
0: all, another thing that's missing from his prescription, maybe it's further down. I might have skipped the last few paragraphs. But another thing that's missing from this is his alternative. Like, if you're going to, if you're not going to do capitalism, which, by the way, in case you're wondering, is just freedom. That's all it is. It's just being free to set your own values, pursue your own happiness, engage in your own relationships under consent. And to do what you want with others who agree without being stopped. That's all it is. That's capitalism. He doesn't present an alternative. Because the only alternative you can present is some degree of slavery. And then you got to make the case as to why that's good. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. My kid had a homework assignment today. It was, uh, he's in third grade, just started. And it was a reading comprehension exercise. And the passage that he had to read was an account of what happened on 9-11. And it was, it put a lot of things in perspective. Here's my kid, (laughs) my child, my nine-year-old reading as history something that i recall vividly happening during my life and you know and i remember these types of exercises when i was in grade school right you'd read the little blurb about oh you know this is why we were in vietnam or you know this is the this is the federal reserve or whatever it is that they would that they would pluck out and you'd read it and you you'd be totally detached from it at that age like you have no sense of what it is it's just oh here's the thing that i'm reading gotta gotta pick out the different parts and Identify them and it's very academic. But man, that, that, we're at that point, 17 years. We're at that point where there's a whole generation of kids who, for them, it's something, it's like World War II almost, right? It's like something that happened in the black and white days. We'll talk about that more tomorrow on the actual anniversary. Closing argument. My name is Walter Ratson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130 1035 FM, 651 989 5855. Let's go to Anthony in St. Paul. Welcome to the program.
4: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yep. So we've gone back and forth on a few different subjects here.
0: That's so, how we do it.
4: Um, <laughs> I like it like that, but now it's going to be – I had a few things I wanted to touch on quickly. Um, first off, the op-ed, uh, I'm just going to go out and say it, I wouldn't put it past the New York Times to totally fake an anonymous source to, so- to try to sow Discord. But uh, that's just me. You know how I am. Um, And then I was going to touch on, uh, we were talking about socialism. Uh, Over, like, two, three days ago, Jim Carrey went on the Bill Maher show and said Democrats have to stop being afraid to say yes to socialism, the word and everything about socialism. Right. That's uh, a little bit freaky. Um, And then I had lost my train of thought while I was on hold because what's his name started talking about Thanos, And it just kind of reminded me, um, (laughs) this is the kind of stuff Charles Manson talks about. Like if you you can read extensively, he talks lots and lots about uh, people having to die for the greater good of the the world. Yeah, yeah, and this. Well, I mean, it's it's. I'm not really sure how to feel about all this because this guy who we're all saying is a you know he's a super psychopath, crackpot, crazy guy, and now the modern left is kind of hinting towards. You know, would it really be so bad? If, you know, there was a button that could kill, you right. know, like half the population, right. and it wouldn't matter who it is. Like, it, like, where are you on this? What? Well,
0: it's it's deeply democratic, right? It's so it's totally equal. There's equity there in the randomness of the Thanos finger snap, right? I, I they'd be all for it. I bet you could find people who would be all for it if it was a real thing to actually do it, because the the the, the Earth would be a better place. For who? I don't know, because I thought the whole point of having a nice earth was to live on it, but apparently not for these guys. Appreciate the call as always, Anthony. Yeah, it's it it is interesting how the left is basically and it's very easy to laugh at it when you think of it in these terms, and then you remember how serious it is because these are real people with a real agenda who have a real power throughout all of our institutions nationally but they're they're basically bond villains like going back to the the early 60s all of the the master plans that each of the bond villains had of we're going to we're going to reduce the population in order to save the planet we're going to bring order to chaos by clamping down on liberty and destroying the west and all this jazz that that's Quite literally, what the left is all about today and has been for decades. And I I took the whole Jim Carrey story differently. I wasn't shocked by it. I thought it was kind of silly that he was like, we need to embrace socialism as if they're not already. Clearly, they are. This is not particularly controversial amongst the left these days. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. from which you can understand this tendency of the left to be anti-life, to be anti-human achievement, anti-human activity, anti the pursuit of human value, is in the, the details of how they discuss the concept of equity, Equity and equality, which often get conflated with one another, but very specifically this this word equity, which basically implies, that everybody gets the same results. Everybody has the same benefits. Everybody gets to have the the same life experience, regardless of their personal attributes or any sort of circumstances, which may otherwise have granted them privilege. It's a pretty insidious idea, because here's the thing. There is no, to date, so far, perhaps there's late breaking news, I haven't heard it, But to date, magic wands aren't an actual thing. Genies in bottles aren't real. The granting of wishes isn't a thing that happens in the real world. And so, in lieu of any of that, there exists no way to make somebody capable of doing something that they're not capable of inherently, right? Like, you can't, I'm never going to jump as high as lebron james or be as fast or be as talented as basketball it's never going to happen i could start training today 13 hours a day (laughs) for you know i don't know however long five years six years doesn't matter how long it's never going to happen i'm too old i don't have the requisite skills
1: to start with you know you're never going to do 95 sit-ups
0: no i'm never it's never going to happen i'm never going to do five okay all right like it's it ain't happening so you, you can't, if, if your goal is equity, if your goal is to put me and LeBron James on the same level, you're never going to get me to his level. The only approach, the only methodology you can employ is tearing him down, restraining him, attaching weights to him, chaining him up, keeping him from doing what it is that
1: he's capable of doing. I think you're describing the plot to Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, some something that Brad's brought up a number of times, and I still haven't gone to and need to. It's a short story, man. It takes ten <laughs> minutes. You got yeah, to read it's, it. Yeah, but it's, you know, reading.
0: I gotta. There's got to be an audiobook version. I'm driving around. Probably.
1: Yeah, I'll check it out.
0: So, but yeah, I mean, that's that's it. That's the deal. That's the only way you can make it happen. And we got a story here out of PJ Media, where I used to be a contributor, that demonstrates this pretty well. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 11:30. 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can contribute 651-989-5855. Brad Homeland taking those calls and producing the show. A math education professor is arguing that gifted math classes cause, wait for it, academic apartheid. Academic apartheid. ...among students, claiming that the practice is rooted in capitalist exploitations and settler colonialism. The study, entitled Understanding Issues Associated with Tracking Students in Mathematics Education, was published in the new issue of the Columbia University Journal, Mathematics Education, by Casey Wells, a professor at the University of Oklahoma. In his article, which relies heavily upon social justice math theory... Now, I I don't know what that is. I don't know what social justice math theory is, but I'm going to go ahead right now and put it in the same category as magic wands, genies in bottles, and the granting of wishes. It's not a real thing that actually exists. And yet, this guy is getting paid to study it at the University of Oklahoma, presumably by the good taxpayers of Oklahoma, certainly not by somebody who's pursuing a market value that actually exists. In his article, which relies heavily upon social justice math theory, Wells takes aim at what teachers call academic tracking, which is the practice of placing students in different math classes, such as pre-algebra or gifted classes, depending upon test scores. Under the tracking system, for example, a student who scores in the top 10% of his peers may be placed into a pre-calculus course. On the other hand, a student who scores in the lowest 10% may be placed into a remedial math class or perhaps pre-algebra. Put another way, we actually meet the end, to some degree, to, to a very low degree in the public education system, we actually make a marginal effort to cater to the specific individual needs of specific individual students. So if, if the class is going too slow for you and you're getting bored and therefore not getting the most out of your academic time as a result we're gonna put you in a tougher class so that you're actually being engaged and you can actually develop at the pace that is inherent for you. Conversely if you're having a hard time in the normal class you're not grasping the basic concepts they've moved on to things that you have no hope of understanding because you don't get the thing they were teaching last week we got a path for you too and it's the remedial class. Now These are not measures of moral worth. And this is where the left, this is what the left conflates. The left loves to conflate achievement and economic value and personal attributes, talents, and the recognition of such. They love to equate that with moral worth, which is pretty disgusting, just like on its face. The idea that, oh, Somebody's worth more as a human being because they're good at math or because they can, you know, slam dunk or because they can run a business, whatever the case may be. Literally no one on earth is making that argument other than the left who claims to abhor it. They're the ones who are making the argument that moral worth is attached to what you can do with your life. Nobody else is making that argument. And so, and under that premise, they're saying we can't allow people to achieve more than other people. We can't allow somebody to be placed on a track where they're going to be in an advanced math class because then we're taking something away from the students who are left behind in the normal class, or even worse, who are being subjugated and denigrated in the remedial class. No, none, of, none, nobody, none of these people are being either lifted up. In a moral sense or put down in a moral sense. This is not a moral assessment of their worth as human beings, of the quality of their souls. This is an academic assessment of their ability in math, which is a thing that's kind of important. And, you know, look, I laughed earlier, and perhaps you did too, at this social justice math theory concept. And again, I I can't begin to grasp what they
1: actually mean by that. I I Googled it quickly, and basically it means they're using math to teach concepts of social justice or apply them to social justice. As in, if you live 88 years and you spend 14 of them in prison because you were wrongfully convicted of a crime, how many years of your life do you have left to live?
0: That's not a theory. That's just politicizing story problems. Exactly. That's so dumb. It's dumber than I thought. I gave it more credit than it deserved. Oh, God. I assumed that there was going to be something more to it than that. Something less dumb. Oh, man. I I really... I'm so disappointed that that's all it is.
1: If Craig only makes $30,000 a year and spends $11,000 on rent, how much does he have left to live on?
0: Oh, my Lord. That's super dumb.
1: He only he spends eleven thousand dollars on rent because there are no affordable homes in his community.
0: So I mean, is it is it one of those deals where they're less concerned about whatever the answer to the actual math problem is than to getting across the, the social message? I'm Probably. Guessing? So at any rate, this this is deeply insidious. This this and I've, and this is not the first place we've seen an attack upon math. As such, I remember we had an article. You know, maybe we'll Google it over one of the breaks here tonight. There was an article in the stack some months back where a lefty academic was actually making the case that math itself is racist. Like math is racist, and and they weren't joking. They were making a serious argument, and this is a problem because and and I, but it doesn't surprise me. It does not surprise me that they would go after math. Why? Because math destroys their worldview. The, the principles, the realities, the truths upon which math is based and that math reflects completely obliterates their worldview. Because fundamental to math, the first rule of math is that A equals A. Things are equal to things. There is a reality, a concrete yes-or-no, black-and-white, good-and-bad alternative that we can identify with absolute certainty and then proceed accordingly. And the ability to do so is not just fun, but actually essential to the preservation of human life and the securing of the values we need in order to survive and thrive. You know, the, if you buy into math and you become somebody who who values math, which you know, used to just be called being a normal human person and living in Western civilization, if you subscribe to this, then it presents an, an immediate and fundamental impediment to buying into all their efforts to undermine the concept of reality itself, which they're trying to undermine at every turn in every way, whether it's economic reality, physical, biological reality, The concept of truth is an obstacle to the left, and math puts truth right up in front of your face in such a way that you can't possibly deny it unless you're just willfully ignorant. And so that's what they've chosen, willful ignorance, willful ignorance, and the preaching of willful ignorance. And if you're not going to go along with it, well, by God, you're a racist. That's their modus operandi. Pretty aggressive topic shift here, but I'm going to go for it. From Cato, they have a breakdown. You recall the murder of Molly Tibbets, which took place a few weeks back, and the political narrative that emerged in the aftermath of it. Cato has a piece here reading, Shortly after Iowa prosecutors charged illegal immigrant Christian Riviera with the murder of Molly Tibbetts in August, his Iowa employer erroneously stated that E-Verify had approved him for legal work. That later turned out to be false as his employer, Yarby Farms, ran his name and social security number through another system called Social Security Number Verification Service that merely verified that the name and number matched, not E-Verify. That mix-up has inspired many to argue that an E-Verify mandate for all new hires would have stopped Riviera from working and thus prevented the murder of Molly Tibbetts. That's almost certainly not true. New details reveal that E-Verify would likely not have prevented Rivera from working. E-Verify is an electronic eligibility for employment verification system run by the federal government at taxpayer expense. Created as a pilot program in 1996, E-Verify is intended to prevent the hiring of illegal immigrants by verifying the identity information they submit for employment against federal government databases in the Social Security Administration and Department of Homeland Security. The theory behind E-Verify is that illegal immigrants won't have the identity documents to pass E-Verify, so they won't be able to work, thus sending them all home and preventing them from coming. That naive theory fails when confronted with the reality of the Riviera case. Riviera submitted the name John Budd on an out-of-state driver's license and a social security number that matched that name to his employer, Yarby Farms, when he was hired in 2014. Yardby Farms ran the Social Security Number and named John Budd through the Social Security Number Verification Service to guarantee that they matched for tax purposes. The Social Security Number Verification Service matched the name with the Social Security Number and approved Riviera disguised as Bud to work. E-Verify would also have matched the name with the Social Security Number and approved Riviera for work. The systemic f- design flaw in eVerify is that it only verifies the documents that the worker hands his employers, not the worker himself. Thus, if an, an illegal immigrant hands the identity documents of an American citizen to an eVerify using employer, then it verifies the documents and the worker with the documents gets the job, just as happened here with Rivera handing URB Farms the identity of John Budd. That's why. of illegal immigrants run through E-Verify are approved for legal work. 54% of illegal immigrants run through E-Verify are approved for legal work. E-Verify is worse than a coin toss at identifying known illegal immigrants. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. You might want to get that dump button built. I'm relatively certain I can say what I'm about to say on the air. But, you know, there's always like a 17% chance that I'm wrong. From the Daily Wire, this is kind of interesting. Former President Barack Obama suggested on Friday that outrage over the 2012 attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, which resulted in the deaths of four Americans, was a result of wild conspiracy theories. Obama, trying to help the Democrats in the 2018 midterms, attacked President Donald Trump while speaking at the University of Illinois, where he accepted the Paul H. Douglas Award for Ethics in Government. But over the past few decades, the politics of division and resentment and paranoia has unfortunately found a home in the Republican Party, Obama said. Obama then attacked Republican members of Congress, accusing them of embracing wild conspiracy theories like those surrounding Benghazi. Shortly after Obama made his remarks, Chris Peranto, a former army ranger who was a private security contractor working for the CIA at the CIA annex in Benghazi, slammed Obama. Peranto, who is credited with saving approximately 20 people during the attack, wrote on Twitter, and here's where we might need the dump. Benghazi is a conspiracy, Barack Obama? How about we do this? Let's put your cowardly ass on top of a roof with six of your buddies Shoot RPGs, AK-47s at you while terrorists lob 81-millimeter mortars killing two of your buddies, all while waiting for U.S. support that you never sent. Hashtag scum. That's cold. That's cold. And accurate. And deeply accurate. Oof. Oh, 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 man. And it kind of goes to the point that, These these folks have no shame. Like We didn't talk at all, and I'm actually quite grateful. I'm actually quite proud of the fact. I just realized it now. I hadn't even thought about it. We've never talked about the Colin Kaepernick thing, the Colin Kaepernick Nike thing. Never came up on this show. I'm quite proud of that because what a just ghastly controversy that was. But this goes to that same point of, it's really easy when you don't have a sense of what real heroism is, right? To conflate things that are not heroism at all with actual heroism. And in this case or to miss heroism when it's right in front of you, to not see it when you're face to face with it. For Barack Obama to to come out and say these things about Benghazi and then get schooled in this manner by the guy who was there, the guy who took actual action in the real world under fire to save real individual human lives. And again, this is the difference between the left's fake concern for you and other people's genuine concern for real human beings, tangible, relational concern, where they actually physically, of their own accord, do something themselves, give of themselves, because They care because they have honor, because they have a sense of duty, and they take the action. It's a stark contrast. And again, I find myself perplexed as to why we can't just always beat these guys. This should be really easy, this contest. The Chris Perantos of the world versus the Barack Obamas.
1: Well, apparently it was easy in
0: 2016. Yeah, there you go. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. John Bolton has come out of the woodwork. Haven't heard anything from him, really, since he was appointed to serve as National Security Advisor in the Trump administration. (laughs) Much to, to Brad's delight. From CBS News, the United States will not in any way cooperate with the International Criminal Court. National Security Advisor John Bolton announced in a speech to the Federalist Society on Monday Blasting the International Criminal Court as an unaccountable bureaucratic body that runs counter to the U.S. Constitution and is antithetical to our nation's ideals. In his first speech as National Security Advisor, Bolton made the case that the International Criminal Court's authority is invalid, subverts American sovereignty, and concentrates power in the hands of an unchecked authority in a way that is antithetical to our nation's ideals. In November, the International Criminal Court prosecutor asked to investigate crimes allegedly committed by members of the U.S. military who served in Afghanistan. Bolton called those claims unfounded. The National Security Advisor said it was no coincidence he made his speech on the uh, International Criminal Court one day before the anniversary of September 11th, 2001 terror attacks. Today, on the eve of September 11th, I want to deliver a clear and unambiguous message on behalf of the President of the United States, Bolton said. The United States will use any means necessary to protect our citizens and those of our allies from unjust unjust prosecution by this illegitimate court. We will not cooperate with the International Criminal Court, Bolton said. We will provide no assistance to the International Criminal Court, and we certainly will not join it. We will let them die on their own. After all, for all intents and purposes, the International Criminal Court is already dead to us. That That was his remarks. So there you go. Now... Yeah, it's, it's interesting in this piece, and in Bolton's remarks, at least as they're reported, that he really didn't hammer it home in terms of why this particular body has no legitimacy. And, and again, it's the stark moral contrast, right? Like, who, who do you think makes up the International Criminal Court, right? It's, it's a whole group of nations that are horrendous human rights violators in their own right and who are anti-Western. So why would we care what they think? This is the whole problem with the UN, with the United Nations, with the whole concept of the United Nations. You know, I'm not fundamentally opposed to the idea of international cooperation or international agreements, or even potentially some sort of international governing authority if it was rooted in the libertarian ideas of the Declaration of Independence, if it was rooted in the notion of all people being created equal and being endowed with their creator with certain unalienable rights. But that's not what we have in the Forum of the United Nations. That's not what we have with the International Criminal Court. And so we should properly have nothing to do with it. 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. News Talk, a.m. 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. You can call us 651-989-5855. Get on the show. Say your piece. Those calls are taken by Brad Omland. He produces the show. We were talking about the International Criminal Court. John Bolton has come out and said that we are not going to cooperate with them in any way. And uh, I don't seem to have a problem with that, personally.
1: I am tempted to disagree with John Bolton because he's a hothead and an idiot. but And he doesn't do a good job of explaining why the International Criminal Court might need reform or why the U.S. might actually agree with it. And to his point the The International Criminal Court doesn't always do a good job of affecting the justice that it is set out to do. Because, in my view, the International Criminal Court is set up to address the moral hazard of winner's writing history. In that, when, say, for America, like, America goes to war, along the way, war crimes are committed. Say, for example, the my lay massacre in Vietnam or the Blackheart story in, in Afghan, was it Iraq or Afghanistan? Anyways, um, things like that happen. And because the U S is in charge and the U S is the only organization there that can affect justice to that situation. They may not because there's no one there to check on them that, uh, they are the winners. And so therefore they write history, the, the stories of human suffering that come with war, Aren't written by the winners, right? And so th- there needs, I think, to some extent, there needs to be an organization that looks at things like that and says, "Okay, what's being done about this?" And and w- well, it's true that there is systems in place through through the JAG Corps, for example, in the Army, that is designed to deal with infractions and hopefully uh, war crimes. The that that may not always get done because of, uh po, you know, interpol interorganizational politics and and po- policy and getting the job done. So then it goes to the International Criminal Court, sort of retroactively almost. And as we've seen, there they have been not that great at affecting justice or bringing justice to a different definition. There's not like this crime fits this punishment because. Let's face it. The International Criminal Court is dealing with heavy crimes against humanity, genocide, and so what? What they've used to? There was a case in Africa, I forget where. Maybe, maybe it was Rwanda. Um, the, basically, this guy started killing the other people in his in the opposing tribe in the neighborhood, and you know, organizing people against the against them. Yeah, and killed a bunch of people and. Eventually, he was brought to the International Criminal Court, and the people in that neighborhood who kind of testified against him, they brought justice to the local level and that they reintegrated him into the community right away. He lives with the families that he killed because that was their definition of justice. Whereas in, for example, the genocide in Bosnia against Muslims, the, the guy who was in charge or was leading Bosnia and had the, that policy of genocide is now serving 40 years in prison. Mm-hmm. And those are very def- different definitions of justice. Right. And in both cases, does... I guess, maybe in the African case, that that's a very interesting way to apply justice, but in the Bosnian case, does one man spending 40 years in prison really sure. right. account for yeah. mass genocide? Right. So... How effective is that justice? So I think that the International Criminal Court is, in theory, a good idea to address incidents of crimes against humanity where winners write history and justice may not be affected by the winning regime. But at the same time, we've seen by their examples that they may not affect justice appropriately.
0: Yeah, I mean, a couple of reactions to that um first off the it's it seems to kind of comport with john bolton's objection which is that because just as a as a practical matter if you're going to have some theoretical entity that is capable of judging the winner of a conflict and we're talking about nation states here inherently that you are talking about giving up the sovereignty of whatever nation is being judged, like on what authority does the international criminal court get to judge the United States of America? That's ultimately the question, the authority by which the United States grants it. Well, exactly. And that's just it is when, when that's the scenario and the U S says, well, I, let me tell you where you can stick that authority, right? That makes sense to me. Why would you want to grant that type of control to another entity, particularly when that entity is affected by and contributed to and governed by many of your international rivals who have their own political agendas, many of which are centered on trying to make you look as bad as possible, while at the same time diverting attention from their own crimes that they're engaged in, you know, and on, on the scope of, you know, not that any, any given crime calls out for justice however on the spectrum of crimes committed internationally globally are the things that allegedly u.s citizens or u.s soldiers did in this theater or that theater where we really ought to be drawing our attention or or, or putting our laser focus as opposed to say bashir Assad in syria or you know Things that are happening in China or things that are happening in a dozen other places in the world. Pe- people eating their dogs in the street in Venezuela. Like, there are a lot of places we could be looking that were not with the International Criminal Court or various United Nations committees and what have you, because there's no political utility in focusing on those atrocities. There is political utility on trying to pull down the big, you know, we talked earlier about trying to pull down LeBron James in order to make me equal to him in an equity sense. There's a sense in which internationally, that's what other nations are trying to do to the United States. Let's drag down the U.S. And Trump has latched onto this with his America first and his, you know, screw the U.N. and we don't care, and way to go Brexit, and we don't care about the international order and what have you. There's this sentiment that's understandable that's kind of a backlash against this anti-American sentiment that prevails in institutions like the International Criminal Court.
1: Well, it reinforces the point that justice is served at an individual level. In, exactly. In that it's hard to you you know, you could bring up our examples like Iran, uh, Venezuela, China, but it's easier for the International Criminal Court to pick out one or two people and say, you, you were responsible. The same thing happened in the Miley Massacre. Uh, Lieutenant Callie people people kind of see look back at that and see, yeah, he really didn't get the punish or his punishment didn't fit the crime, but the problem was is that he was the only one punished yeah. when multiple people participated in the miley massacre,
0: yeah, and that's the other takeaway I had from your observation, which is that you really can't there's a there's a movie that's out now, I can't remember what it's called, I think it's the oh, i i can't remember it, but the the premise of it is it's um Eichmann, I want to believe, the guy who orchestrated the Holocaust, Adolf Eichmann. Um, It's the story of how he was discovered years later and put on trial in Israel. And there's a line in the trailer, and I don't know if it's a line that the actual guy actually said at some point in his life. But there's a line where he says, you guys are going to execute me, and I'm paraphrasing, you guys are going to execute me for the Holocaust and, you know, last laugh is on you because what you're actually saying by doing that is that my life is worth all the millions of Jews that we killed, right? And that that he's saying that in order to, obviously, in order to goad them on and in order to ridicule them. But the truth of the matter is you could only ever execute justice on the individual level. Should other people pay on top of adolf eichmann of course they should but that doesn't mean you don't go after adolf eichmann right it doesn't mean that you don't put the the uh, bosnian guy in jail for 40 years if that's what justice requires justice is often incomplete but to the extent that we can meet it out on an individual basis we absolutely should 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is walter outson twin cities news talk am eleven thirty one zero three five 1035 fm twin cities newstalk.com Lest you assume that the drama coming out of that civil rights case, that Supreme Court case involving the Colorado Civil Rights Commission and the Masterpiece Cake Shop and uh, his refusal, Jack Phillips' refusal to bake a cake for a gay wedding, lest you think that drama was over, oh no, it continues. It's ongoing. And now... There's a lawmaker in Colorado who is fighting back. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. From the Daily Wire, Representative Doug Lamborn from Colorado is calling on the Department of Justice to investigate the Colorado Civil Rights Commission and its director for harassing Jack Phillips, the owner of the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. Phillips was cited by the commission after refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding leading him to fight his case all the way up to the Supreme Court, which found the Colorado Civil Rights Commission deliberately discriminated against Phillips for his religious views. Nowhere is the assault on religious freedom more pervasive than at the Colorado Civil Rights Commission through their selective application of the law, using it to target viewpoints that contradict their own personal beliefs, Mr. Lamborn said in a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions last month. For over six years now, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission has been on a crusade against Jack Phillips because its officials despise what he believes and how he practices his faith. Phillips defied himself all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and won, he, though Colorado's hostility towards his faith was over. Or he thought Colorado's hostility towards his faith was over, Lamborn wrote. Unfortunately, he was wrong. Lamborn added that no one should be bullied or banished from the marketplace simply because their beliefs don't line up with the government-favored viewpoint. And isn't that the whole point here? Like, it's, it's amazing to me. Matt Walsh has written on this and talked about this quite a bit, uh, rightfully so, because, you know, now that the spotlight of the Supreme Court has turned elsewhere, uh, all, the tendency is to not talk about this or not follow this guy's story anymore. But realize that this Jack Phillips guy... Six years, this has been ongoing. Imagine, imagine, you know, you're in business. This is your livelihood. He doesn't do this for fun. You know, baking cakes isn't his hobby. This is what he does to make a living. And for the past six years, he's been diverted from that productivity, diverted from the pursuit of his own happiness and the acquisition of his own values in order to defend himself from an ongoing, withering, well-funded assault. Not just from the couple in question that leveled the charge against him, but from the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, from a state agency that has decided he must be ruined, that he must be sacrificed on the altar of whatever. Tolerance, diversity, anti-bigotry, whatever it is we're going to summon or conjure as a justification. Now... If your premise is that people should be able to, because the whole idea, and I don't agree with it, but the whole idea that because you want a cake for your wedding, you ought to be able to buy it. Like that premise is predicated on the notion that to be denied such a cake is such a profound, deep, impactful offense that it requires state action in order to make you whole like the person who denies you a cake for your gay wedding has committed such an offense against you that only an act of the state can set things right. And it calls for legal action under the force of law to, to rebalance the scales and bring the market back into balance. If that's your premise, Then how do you, how do you justify the extent to which Jack Phillips life has been thrown completely out of balance for six years? I mean, look, the effect of, I'm not saying you have to like it. You go into a bakery and you say, Hey, uh, me and Steve are getting married and we want you to bake a cake for our wedding. And the person says, No, you, you get refused. I'm not saying that doesn't suck on some level. I'm not saying it doesn't feel bad. I'm suggesting that it's pretty easy to get over, especially considering the fact that you probably don't even have to get back into your car to find another bakery that'll do the job for you. They're cutting down and they're driving. Yeah, exactly. They're going a long way towards meeting Minneapolis's goal of cutting emissions by 80 percent by 2050, right? So it's I, I fail to see how it's a big de- how it's genuinely really a big deal for you to be denied the baking of a cake. By contrast, what has happened to Jack Phillips is a big deal. His name has been dragged through the mud. He's been called every horrible name in the book consistently, persistently over the course of years. He's been taken to court. He's, they're continuing to attack him. They try to set him up on a, a complete on different charges, different accusations after the Supreme Court ruling because they're dead set. Imagine the mentality. This, this is the other takeaway from this. You know, we often made fun of, you know, some of our, some of our uh, allegedly conservative friends who are really obsessed with Muslims. And we've talked about how, how horrible it must be to wake up every morning and be like, oh, Muslim. Oh, oh. Like you live in fear of this dread of, of the Muslims coming to get you. In a similar sense, there seems to be a subset of the gay rights community that wakes up obsessed with finding people like Jack Phillips to destroy and that's a very, that requires a poisoned soul. Like, you have to have a broken humanity, a broken soul, in order to be that focused on trying to destroy another human being because they disagree with you. But therein lies the essence of the left. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 9 to 11 weeknights. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.